What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Iraq Legacy of War, brought to you by Intelligence Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. In this limited series, we're looking at the legacy of the war in Iraq 20 years after the US-led invasion in March 2003. Every day this week, we'll bring you a special episode. We'll start by looking at the road to war and the hopes that both Western politicians and many Iraqis had for the intervention, before analysing what went wrong, the destruction of a nation, and the rise of terror and extremism. To help us unpack it all, we'll hear from policymakers, security experts, military personnel, journalists, and Iraqi citizens. Join us as we look back at one of the most significant military interventions in modern history and address how its legacy has defined global tensions and foreign policy today. And if you missed episode one of this series, where we discussed the landmark moments on the road to war, do go back and listen now. Our host for this episode is investigative journalist Manveen Rana. This is George W. Bush, the President of the United States. At this moment, the regime of Saddam Hussein is being removed from power and a long era of fear and cruelty is ending. American and coalition forces are now operating inside Baghdad, and we will not stop until Saddam's corrupt gang is gone. The government of Iraq and the future of your country will soon belong to you. The goals of our coalition are clear and limited. We will end a brutal regime whose aggression and weapons of mass destruction make it a unique threat to the world. In this episode of the podcast, we'll be looking at what happened in Iraq once the Americans and the British arrived, why the transfer of power was a far from smooth operation, and what else went wrong in what should have been the mission for liberation. I'm joined again by Reynard Mansour, Director of the Iraq Initiative at Chatham House, and Claire Short, who was Secretary of State for International Development from 1997 until 2003. Reynard, Claire, welcome back to Intelligence Squared. Reynard, how did the situation in Iraq change after the initial invasion? What were the challenges you think the the US and and the UK faced in trying to establish a a new government and stabilise the country? Well, I think if you remember that it was about regime change, this idea that you could go into Iraq 
and remove the regime, the inner circle, Saddam Hussein and his, 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 his people, and bring in a new regime. And the next day you have democracy. Um, but what you started to see was this was actually the destruction of the state, not regime change. Two specific decisions that were made by the coalition provisional authority, which turned into an occupying force, um, led by an American, Paul Bremer, two decisions, and he was, of course, being guided and, and advised by the opposition, the Iraqi opposition that had been formed in the 1990s, really meant the state would be destroyed. The first was to remove the entire military, to demilitarize. We're not talking about only Saddam's closest bodyguards and closest, most trusted military. We're talking the border guards. We're talking anyone who was Iraqi and in the Iraqi military, in, in a way, most were you know out of a job. So now you have men with guns and no job and livelihoods. That's not regime change. That's destroying a state. The second decision that the CPA, this coalition provisional authority made, was what became known as debathification. Again, Saddam's Ba'ath party uh, had ruled Iraq, and the idea was you need to remove the party. But debathification went far beyond regime change. The decision was made to remove some 40,000 senior civil servants from the Iraqi state. These are the people who worked across the ministries, who worked across, you know, university deans and all, you know, state, you know, hospitals, all senior people. Teachers. Teachers, yeah. Teachers, doctors. It was, you know, it was a state where you had to be a card-carrying member of the Ba'ath Party to be promoted to higher levels of, 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 of government or of, of universities and schools or hospitals. So overnight, it was no longer regime change. It was the destruction of the state. And that's a different story. And that's a different endeavor. That is not something that can be done through shock and awe or swiftly. You're talking about having to build a state. Claire, as you, as you pointed out, you know, this meant even teachers were losing their jobs. And as Reynard sort of explained, anybody who wanted a job under Saddam Hussein had to be a card-carrying member of the Ba'ath Party, whether they believed in it or not. These failures, this catastrophic policy of debathification, how much of that do you think came from the, the planning or the lack of planning inside the system? I mean, were, were you getting a sense of just how prepared they were for what happens on day two of the invasion, on day three. I mean, remember, famously, Rumsfeld used to say, we don't do nation building. They thought they could go in, the people would welcome them and they could leave and it would be democracy. Naive and silly. And I mean, doesn't look at any kind of historical examples, even little Sierra Leone, you have to rebuild the institutions of a state, you know, to give people a chance to have a better future. And I mean, take the British military. They were both meant to be coming in through Turkey. Then Turkey voted not to let them in, so at the last minute they're coming in through the south and they say they'll take over Basra. We are telling them, this is from the Department for International Development, you will have a responsibility as the occupying power to make sure people are fed and they've got water and electricity. And the British military are panicking and ordering food. I mean, that's how, and it was all at the last minute. I mean, it's unbelievable how disgracefully disorganised it all was. And, you know, Britain couldn't cope in, in Basra. It had to run away and couldn't keep order there. 
the British troops were withdrawn and we got out quite quickly. Of course, we put an official into uh, the Coalition Provisional Authority, but they were very much under the thumb of the American decision-making. And Claire, just, just remind us, remind us what happened in Basra, because that will be remembered for generations to come as, as a huge failure for the British military. Absolutely. Well, Britain was meant to occupy Basra and <laughs> thought it had a historical role there and the people were hostile and they couldn't keep order and they ran away. I mean, the British troops had to scuttle. They couldn't control it. it that's what happened. It's. I mean, because there was so much mess in Iraq, it didn't get all the notice it should have got. It was shameful. It was humiliating. But that's what happened. Reynard, on the ground, you've got suddenly not just the invasion that gets rid of Saddam Hussein, but suddenly you have troops on the streets. You have them sometimes behaving badly or, or at least out of fear. You also have, as you've explained, ordinary people losing their jobs across the board. That moment of hope when losing Saddam might have meant something better is very quickly destroyed in, in mass unemployment and, and people who are angry. Just tell us what it meant for ordinary Iraqis, how that first year or two of the invasion played out. I mean, it was, as I say, a complete transformation of anything they'd known. Uh, they became, you know, there's been a book about this now, but they became, they felt like strangers in, in, in their own country now. You had foreign troops, American troops, other troops, uh, many of them just young men and women who don't speak the language, but who now have a huge amount of authority. And a lot of mistakes were made from these troops, right? I mean, it's the, the idea that troops and guns can, can lead to bring democracy on their own, I think is something that we should learn from, from, from what happened in, in Iraq. Immediately, what you had was looting, and that was huge. I mean, this the, the complete collapse of law and order, because you removed the police and the military and, and, and the security forces, people just began stealing. People began going in. You had criminality that came out. It, it was a complete mess. And I think that's why very quickly on, Iraqis realized that this occupation didn't have their best interests and, and that there was this sort of chaos that came. I wanted to say, though, you know, we often think of these as big mistakes that were a consequence of poor planning. But if you think about who finally benefited, and I spent a lot of time in the last years doing sort of research on the history of this. If you look at the opposition, right? So they had now come to Baghdad, a city that, you know, had become to some extent foreign to them. They had not been there for decades. They needed to make big changes, right? So they made certain decisions to empower themselves. The new Iraq wasn't necessarily to serve the people. It was to, to empower a new elite coming from abroad. And keep in mind that Iraq just had a new prime minister in 2022, Mohammed Shia Sudani. He's the first prime minister to have been born and raised in Iraq. Every other previous prime minister came from abroad, right? So that's the extent of this new elite uh, who came in after 2003. They form a governing council, which is, again, working with the CPA, and most of them are these exiles that have come to Baghdad uh, to, to govern. So how does one make a political system where they don't really know the people in their constituencies? You make it based on identity. And this is where sectarianism starts to seep into the equation. 
Yes, Iraq has Sunni, Shia, Kurdish, Arab, Christian, many different ethnicities. But for many Iraqis before 2003, that wasn't a political question. That wasn't a military question. But what happens after 2003 is as this elite come back, they need to build constituencies and they can't do it easily going to neighborhoods that they don't know. But what they can do is create a political system that's based on these imagined communities or these communities, whether it's the Shia and using, you know, Shiism as a way to begin to represent, bringing in clerics, including the Grand Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani, to get people to vote for you. Of course, the Kurds you know, using nationalism, identity again, in a way based on Saddam's, you know, terrible, brutal legacy. So what happens is Iraq is sectarianized. And you begin to see that both in the political system, but also in the neighborhoods. You start getting Sunni, Shia neighborhoods. And this leads, again, towards civil war very quickly after the, the occupation. So in their effort to empower themselves, the opposition and the new Iraqi government sectarianized Iraq. You know, before the invasion, 20% of Iraqis married across sectarian lines. So, you know, there were mixed neighborhoods. You know, there were different religious interpretations of Islam in the case of Sunni Shia, but they weren't killing each other or anything like. And at what point does this turn into a full-blown insurgency? Reynard, just talk us through that. Well, I think the key to understanding the insurgencies that emerge are looking at the groups that were ultimately excluded from that elite bargain that, that was struck, that was made outside and brought into Iraq. Right. So one of the first insurgencies becomes from Muqtada Sadr's uh, Mahdi army. Right. The Sadrists, a Shia, you know, Muqtada Sadr is a Shia populist cleric, you know, from a big family. His father was was a big leader killed by Saddam. Uh, and he represents Iraqi poor Shia. And support from the slums. Yeah, from the slums, urban slums. But what makes him different is he wasn't part of the opposition. He was in Iraq the whole time. And because of that, he was excluded from the grand design of the opposition when they came in. And so he has trouble becoming part of it and eventually launches an insurgency that goes against the Americans, but also against the other Shia groups that are now in Baghdad. So you have a Shia civil war. Another insurgency comes from the Sunni side, because ultimately the opposition that now becomes powerful in power in Iraq are either primarily Kurdish and Shia groups. The Sunnis were largely excluded because they didn't really have political representation other than the Ba'ath party, which was now disbanded. And so what you start seeing in Sunni areas, because of that exclusion from the new system, is a growing sense of uh, disillusionment and oppression, which again turns violent in insurgency against the new system. So you have insurgencies coming from both sides by those who were primarily excluded from this new design. And also because there's chaos. So everyone's frightened and, you know, American troops are killing people and, and so people get guns. So I agree with that description of the politics, but also chaos makes people try to be supported by people with guns who can protect them. And it just drives this sort of situation. And this also links to the question of, of what violence would become after 2003. So you have the proliferation of armed groups, of militias. Most people, to protect neighborhoods, you have guns everywhere. When the Iraqi military was disbanded in 2003, 
it was never genuinely rebuilt because these parties, because they were opposition, they had, you know, they had a, a traumatic past with the Iraqi military, a fear that a, a strong man could reemerge and do a military coup. So by design, there was no centralization of violence. There was no monopoly over violence there, because that would go against the interest of this new elite. Instead, each kept private access to their own arms, whether it was the Shia groups, Sunni groups, Kurdish groups, all of them refused to give up their arms to the government. Instead, they decided we need to keep our arms close to us, what I mean, keep our weapons close to us in case another strongman emerges. And so this patchwork of se the security sector makes Iraq way more violent uh, after 2003. And do you think there's anything that the Americans and, and the British could have done in order to stop sectarianism becoming such a problem? You know, as Claire pointed out, before the invasion, people intermarried. Saddam's government had people of different religions in it. Is there a way that they could have controlled the outcome? You know, they could have they could have ensured that sectarianism wasn't the thing that was ripping the country apart. Well, ironically, the idea of sectarianism was 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 linked to this idea of representation, right? There was this picture painted that Saddam was this Sunni leader. Uh, who had oppressed the Kurds and who had oppressed the Shia. And so the political system, to be democratic, had to be based on identities. That was the only way to ensure that all sides would have representation. But of course, that's not what happened. Instead, a very, you know, the small group of elite was able to instrumentalize those identities to control people. And that's where sectarianism starts coming in. Now, when it comes to the U.S., the U.K., the, the, you know, the CPA, let's also remember that despite the sort of mission accomplished announcements by President Bush six weeks after the invasion, they were now in a completely different game. This wasn't, as I say, regime change anymore. This was creating a new state. But they didn't have the patience for that. Well, not creating a state, creating chaos. I mean, once you have chaos, how do you ever get it back? Yes, exactly. And Claire, for you, looking back now, what do you think were the key failures of, of Britain and America at the time in, in going in, you know, in, in planning for the occupation as well as the invasion? First of all, invasion wasn't necessarily the only way of getting rid of Saddam Hussein. And I make the example of Milosevic. And if, if he could have been indicted as a war criminal and the people of Iraq invited to hand him over, who knows what would have happened? Because as has been said, he wasn't at all popular. So we should have explored different possibilities. And then I don't think there should have been a military occupation. If it really was an action to liberate the people of Iraq, it should have been a UN-led international force, not Americans, not British. And the first thing you have to keep is order and keep people fed and having water and electricity and keep some order in the country. I mean, thinking that you just destroy all the institutions the military, the police, the education, the hospital, you know, the doctors and so on, because they were members of the Ba'ath Party. It's just, I mean, this isn't complicated. This is, this is just a disastrous series of decisions that shows they really didn't know what they were doing. And they weren't talking to local people. They had, as, as has been said, they had their out-of-date people from outside. And the chaos came very quickly. And then, you know, lots of American troops were scared. They kept shooting people. And then you get, you remember the Abu Ghraib and those horrendous sexual torture pictures? 
remind us again of what we learned about what happened at Abu Ghraib and just how much anger it caused here at the time. Well, they they arrested people, of course, that they saw as being resistant to them. And then we got these pictures of revolting sexual torture. I mean, do you remember? We all saw the pictures. It was just unbearable and so disgraceful. And of course, out of that, you get the birth of Islamist movements and ISIS out of pure fury. And so we get something that destabilises not just Iraq, but the wider region and the world. And Claire, at the time, Abu Ghraib, that that was uh, an American, that was American troops who were responsible. Was there a lot of anger here amongst politicians and amongst sort of Labour politicians in the, in the government that it was, you know, marring the entire project for everybody? You know, was there, a, was there an anger that Britain was being let down by the, by the behaviour of the Americans? Well, I was out of the government by then, of course, and I think Britain was just keeping its head down. We scuttled, we got out very fast. We put a deputy into the CPA, but we, we had little authority and um, we weren't part of it. I think everyone was embarrassed and upset by what a mess it all was and horrible sexual torture of prisoners and everyone knew it was a disaster. I think people were just keeping their head down. Reynard, how did that play out in Iraq? You know, not only did you have the high-level incompetence that led to, um, you know, the rise of sectarianism and the sense of chaos and debarthification, but then you suddenly start seeing evidence that some of the troops on the ground who were supposed to be keeping order were abusing their power. How did that affect the the reputation of the coalition in, in Iraq? By the time that those images came out, Iraqis living uh, in the country had long become accustomed to such abuses. Um, stories of soldiers shooting civilians, so- stories of, uh, of, of abuses in prisons, torture were very common, you know, and, 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 and these stories were being told around. And this is why another reason why many Iraqis began to resist the, the occupation. And, the, you know, they said, these, these are our so-called liberators. This is what they're doing. So very, I mean, it, it was, I mean, it was, of course, a tragedy and a huge, huge outrage that came out of it. But by the time it came out, it was very well known by Iraqis that, that this was the America that was now occupying their country. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared. And to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. 
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv and just t- talk us through by then you not only have different factions within iraq that are starting to cause problems but you've started to see how the chaos in iraq is also starting to cause problems regionally and you have some of iraq's neighbors who are joining in talk us through some of the regional tensions that were, were rising Well, I think the biggest regional change that the invasion of Iraq unleashed was the emergence of Iran's influence in the region. Uh, You know, many say that the the U.S. and U.K. and those that invaded Iraq gave Iran a a very strategic victory, a a gift, um, because Saddam was a huge problem for Iran. Uh, They fought an eight-year war. And you remove Saddam and in his place, you bring these opposition figures, many of whom had spent their years in opposition in Iran, uh, some of whom were created, you know, some of these parties were actually created in Iran. Uh, So Iran becomes a very powerful player, the most powerful player in in Iraq after 2003, uh, and to this day remains the strongest influence um, and it's sort of, you know, guided by that legacy of the eight-year war, will continue to keep that influence to ensure that Iraq never becomes uh, either too strong so that they have a neighbor, you know, a, a conflict with a neighbor, but also not too weak so that the chaos that leads to ISIS could ever come again. So, and Iran, of course, moves on at that time to gain more regional power across. It uses Iraq and the wealth of Iraq in a way uh, over over the years to become more powerful regionally. But also the chaos spreads across the Syrian border and the, the new angry Islamist movements taking power, bombing, killing, you know, extreme cultish behaviour, beheading, all that. That's spreading across as a consequence of the chaos and the anger. Yeah, and we will look at the, the rise of extremism later in this series. But Claire, for you... In, in Britain at the time, we're starting to see the occupation going very badly. We're starting to see a failure for the British Army in Basra. Clearly, things are, are only getting worse. And then there's also the distraction of another war. How much do you think the divided attention between Iraq and Afghanistan made it even harder to produce any kind of good in either country? Well, the point that's made and, and that President Obama used to make, because there was no crisis in Iraq that meant there had to be some immediate action and immediate military action, it would have been possible to try and stabilise Afghanistan and make more progress there before doing anything in Iraq. But instead, you've got 
two destabilised countries with an angry Islamist movement spreading across the region and the world. But that's, that was a choice, a policy choice. There was no urgency. It's hubris. You have to say, you know, America thought this is our unipolar moment. We are the greatest power in the world. We can do what we like wherever we like. And Britain must always go with America because that's the only thing that makes us important. I mean, that's Britain's foreign policy, really. Reynard, for you, watching how the occupation was was playing out, what did you make of the media coverage of it? Did you feel it, it was accurate or did you feel like it sort of fell into uh, any particular narratives? Well, of course, it's very difficult to, to cover a war, you know, when, when the, you have chaos and lack of access. And a lot of the Western media, their sources often would come from the US, the CPA, the, the UK, the UN. So what, what you end up having are journalists who don't know much about Iraq, who before going in get these briefings that, that are given to them by either the US State Department or you know the government's part of this coalition provisional authority. And so some of the narratives and th- you know, this becomes very influential, but some of the narratives on Iraq, such as it is this Sunni Shia sectarian country, are, are come from the media because this is what they're being told by the CPA, by the governing council. And so, you know, that question, are you Sunni or Shia? Are you Kurdish or Arab? Uh, which wasn't really a, a question before, becomes the question for journalists trying to understand Iraq. And of course, that leads to a, a different understanding of Iraqis. So, you know, someone like myself traveling around the world afterwards, when people ask where you, you know, your identities and you bring up Iraq, one of the things that people know about Iraq is that it's sectarian, is that it's Sunni Shia. And that, I think, as we revisit the history, we begin to, we begin to see was one of the problems of I mean, journalists, I think the journalists did a lot of courageous things at the time. I think that journalists were trying to hold to account, you know, especially on the weapons of mass destruction and and the legalities of the war. I think the, you know, not to say journalists were completely wrong, but there are just, you know, it's, it's a very complex society and you're there during a war where you have limited access. Right. If you even, you know, trying to go out of the green zone to meet people becomes very difficult. This has always been a, an, an issue. And because of that, I think there are consequences to, to, to reporting. There's another point to make about the media, which is certainly in the UK, it was overwhelmingly pro-going to war. What's being discussed now is the reporting of the chaos and why it happened and what was going on inside the country. But the drumbeat of going to war, the British media went with the government's story. There was very little questioning. Well... Claire, you say that, but at the time the BBC did question some of the some of the, the dossier that they were shown in terms of the intelligence around it. And got into terrible trouble, attacked by Alistair Campbell. Remind us of that. Remind us of the wall that, that, that broke out there. Well, there was um, Dr Kelly, who was knew about WMD inspections in Iraq, and... Uh, he was put under pressure to give evidence to a select committee and it had been implied that he'd said it was clear there wasn't such a WMD and so on. And um, there was a, a young journalist who reported at six o'clock on the 
radio programme what he had to say, and this is the government of Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell and so on, absolutely furious and demanding that he be sacked, that the chair of the BBC be sacked, and he was, Greg Dyke, and I've forgotten the name, Gilligan, wasn't it, the name of the journalist? Andrew Gilligan, yeah. It was an immense row. And uh, what Dr Kelly was saying was was basically well-informed. It was an enormously odd thing. Did it become a moment where, in Britain, you had to follow a particular narrative? Well, if they can sack the chair of the BBC, uh, or the Director-General, and get a, a journalist reprimanded, and I think the, the guy who uh, was editor of the Today programme was reprimanded in some way for what was fundamentally a true story. That shows how bad it all got, and how fraught it all got, and the government's line had to be obeyed. Reynard, for you, you pointed out how there was just that one moment of hope when, you know, the world watched the statue of Saddam toppling. There was a potential future for the Iraqi people which would have looked much rosier. What do you think the the biggest mistakes were and what, what would you have done differently? So if you look at very quickly after the, the invasion, as the occupation begins, the green zone is established. And it's a, a, a part of central Baghdad, completely fortified, where the government sits and the internationals will sit, the US, you, everyone sits, and it's the only place that becomes safe, right? This is where the new government is formed. But this is removed from the rest of society. Iraqis don't have, you know, regular Iraqis, ordinary Iraqis don't have access to this green zone. And many of these people in the green zone don't really go out because the red zone, as they call it, is too chaotic. It's too violent. It's too dangerous. So a country, a state is being made from a green zone that isn't including the opinion of Iraqis. And that, to me, is the sort of the original sin, that the perspectives, the thoughts, the opinions, there weren't town halls. There weren't genuine across the country. There may have been one or two here, there, but there wasn't a genuine effort to slowly go across the country and ask the people what type of political system or what type of system works here. Let's get the voices of local leaders across. No, there was a design, a plan that had been sketched up, as I mentioned, vaguely throughout the 1990s that was simply implemented in a green zone away from society and basically enforced on the country. And to this day, you know, the green zone has opened to some extent, but international, many international aid, many international diplomats working in Iraq, many Iraqi leaders, they still don't go and meet with Iraqi society. So the biggest fault line in Iraq wasn't as much any, isn't as much anymore Sunni versus Shia, but what it is, is this elite versus the rest of the population. And Reynard, you, you talked about the separation between ordinary people and the, the, the new elite. We've seen a number of administrations over the past 20 years. Would you describe Iraq, even now, as a working democracy? Not at all. Iraq has the trappings of democracy. There are elections, but no one is voting anymore. The voter turnout has plummeted. There is a constitution, there are laws, but... What you have instead is an elite that has captured 
the state, an elite that controls the judiciary. So you don't have a, a you know, the judges are not independent. The media, state media is, an, is not independent. Every political party runs their own media. And Iraqis have lost, do not feel at least that they have any of their democratic rights. And so Iraqis, having seen this system and having not benefited from it in October 2019, came, went out to the streets to protest because they felt that this was the only real voice they had left. Elections were just reinforcing the same cast of characters. They didn't really work. The commissions of integrity, human rights commissions, none of them, the parliament, they weren't really holding to account the elite for their corruption. So they decided, let's go and protest. And they were met with repression. They were met with violence. In the first few months, you know, five, 600 Iraqis protesters were killed. Tens of thousands were injured. And since then, Iraq has been has become a very scary place for anyone looking to hold to account this elite, reminiscent of the former regime at times even. And so, you know, to answer the question, Iraq on paper may seem like a democracy, but certainly most Iraqis who I talk to across the country don't feel like they have any say in, in, in their political system. Claire, 20 years on, the Iraq war has clearly just had the most profound impacts on so many countries around the world. In the UK and America, to some extent, how much do you think it's shaped foreign policy ever since then and public opinion in terms of trusting the government, but also in, in terms of wanting to go to, to war again? I think public opinion has lost trust in a deep way, probably in both countries, but certainly in Britain, because the Blair government was quite popular. But after Iraq, then someone they trusted, they couldn't trust. And then who do you trust? Um, I think that's soured the whole atmosphere. Um, War? I mean, people don't like wars anyway. I mean, there's a remarkable support on Ukraine that you might have thought people might have been cynical about that. But I think the critique of that comes from the global south rather than within the UK or Europe. I think the creation of ISIS, I mean, we shouldn't underestimate. That came out of the mess of Iraq and that had an enormous effect across the Middle East and, you know, hostility to Muslims and some horrible terrorist events. That's all part of the consequence. And then, of course, we've got the war in Syria and the destabilisation of the region. And I think after the Arab Spring, you know, when right across the region, 2011, the people were calling for democracy and freedom. And that was allowed to dissipate because I think no one believed that, that anyone could help them to get away from dictatorship. So what was a great historical opportunity for the region was lost. And dictators were allowed to go on and control all the main countries. Reynard, it seems um, it seems almost impossible to ask exactly what the lasting impacts have been on Iraq. They're obviously so vast. But talk us through some of the, the, the key lasting impacts and whether you think there's any sense of hope for the future. If you go around Iraq, it's, it's difficult to see where the hope is. Because of how entrenched this system has become for the last 20 years, uh, a system that is governed you know, entirely by corruption, which is not illegal, but is politically sanctioned. The politics is corruption. 
uh, the Iraqi budget each year goes could go above one hundred billion dollars. In the first, you know, first eight years after the war, some I think the number that some people put up was five hundred and fifty billion dollars was stolen from the government by the political parties. I mean, these the corruption and the stories you hear are are, are just it's tragic. I mean, the Ministry of Health, for example. Uh, has a budget that you know just for pharmaceuticals, which goes in, is is a billion dollars a year, and yet we find that over seventy percent of medicine in Iraq is either fake or counterfeit. So when we think about the legacies of the the war, we often think about the violence that we see, the guns, you know, the soldiers, ISIS. But Iraqis face violence every day if they don't trust the pharmacy because it's most likely that the medicine you take isn't going to work, or that. If you don't trust education system because of corruption, you don't have textbooks. This is this is structural violence that has affected an entire generation, and we're talking about an impact that will that will go on for decades. Where there is hope is in the demographics. So almost two thirds of Iraqis are under the age of twenty five, which means that they don't remember anything before two thousand and three, and they try in many different ways to fight for a better future. I mentioned through protests. Iraq has one of the largest growth rates. Each year, more and more Iraqis enter the job force and don't find jobs. This will be the pressure that will will, will exert itself on that corrupt system that is harming Iraqis every day. But in the meantime, it's going to be, as we've seen, a continued bloody uh, and, and violent system until something new can come. It's really hard to see where that would come from in the in the, in the sort of short to medium term. Are there any reasons for optimism? I think the, the you know the youth. You know these are these are Iraqis. Uh, you know Baghdad, Basra, Mosul. You go now, and they're trying things. You have huge tech startups. You have huge environmental NGOs that they're starting up. They are trying to. You know they understand what they've been born into, and they don't remember anything before. But they're still trying, and they're not giving up. And we did have the Arab Spring before. Maybe a movement across the region will come again, of the youth saying we want a better future. I mean, 2011 was remarkable. It failed, but if you look at the history of Europe, you know, there were revolutions that failed, but in the end they succeeded. So you can't see any immediate hope, but change will come. It always does. Yeah, and I, and I think exactly that. The, the, there's a remarkable bravery to the youth across Iraq who, knowing that they might be killed or jailed or, or kidnapped, are still pushing. And I think that's right. We can't expect change from protests overnight, but a continued movement of, of a group of Iraqis and a growing group of, I mean, the population of Iraq will double you know, soon from what it was in 2003. Um, this growing demographic social pressure, I, I, you know, I know will continue to call for accountability, to call for transparency and be very brave. And I think that's a very scary thought that you have this happening, but you know, you do at times feel hope that people aren't just completely giving up given what they've been through. At least there's some reason for hope. Thank you both so much. That was Reynard Mansour and Claire Short. This was episode two of the Intelligence Squared miniseries, Legacy of War. Join us again for episode three when Reynard returns with the award-winning Iraqi journalist Gaith Abdullahad 
to explore how he became a stranger in his own war-torn city. I'm Manveen Rana. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Iraq Legacy of War, a mini-series by Intelligence Squared. Join us for the next episode of the series where we'll be discussing the destruction and disappearance of a nation. All episodes of Iraq Legacy of War are now available to Intelligence Squared premium listeners. If you would like to hear the rest of this series now, ad-free, please subscribe in the link in the show description. This series was produced by Farah Jassat and Catherine Hughes, with artwork and editing from Catherine Hughes. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.